HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our spring 2022 issue, now available online, features articles on foods on the move, exploring issues of power, authenticity, and emotion. Join us as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guests this week are Professor Kristen Moon from the Department of History and American Studies at the University of Mary Washington, and Professor Jennifer Rohde Ward, Professor of Biology at University of North Carolina, Asheville. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks so much. So let's begin. Can you tell me about your research backgrounds and where you're located? Yes, I'm Jen Brody Ward. I'm a professor of biology at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. And my research focuses on population dynamics, reproductive biology, and genetics of plants. And my real focus is on imperiled species, as well as taxa of medicinal 
and culinary interests. So I've done some work on American ginseng as well as on ramps. And as Jackie mentioned before, my name is Kristen Moon, and uh, I'm in the Department of History and American Studies. And I actually teach American foodways as part of one of our interdisciplinary seminars and have done extensive research on ethnic identity and uh, immigration history. Uh, this project also, I did want to point out, has two other authors, uh, Jose Vasquez and uh Jorge Foyo, both of whom are uh, in Havana. Uh, Pepe, who is Jose Vasquez, um, he's actually senior faculty at the University of Havana, and he specializes in environmental sustainability, sun and beach tourism, and freshwater fisheries. And then Jorge does work in environmental sustainability uh, and marine environments. So we're a pretty diverse crowd. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you uh, have just published an article in um, 22.1 of Gastronomica titled Food Access, Identity and Taste in Two Rural Cuban Communities um, with your research team. Can you tell us what motivated the project? How did you come to work on it together um, across these disciplines? So Kristen and I first met in December 2015. We were on a trip to Cuba that was sponsored by the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges, or COPLEC. And on this trip were 22 faculty across disciplines, including life sciences, social sciences, and humanities. And there were folks from 15 different institutions. And because we were in this cross-disciplinary group and because we were hearing group lectures from all different sorts of um, academic disciplines, it let us think really creatively about Cuban studies. So Kristen and a colleague from UNC Asheville, um, Greta Troutman, and I began to brainstorm ways to fund an examination of Cuban food ways, something that really intrigued us from those lectures and from our experiences with food in Havana. We applied for and then received grant monies from the Christopher Reynolds Foundation, which funds Cuban studies. And as a follow-up to that, as well as trying to plan some study abroad, Greta and I visited Cuba and we met Pepe and Jorge there, and they were extensively involved in the La Picadora Agricultural Collective, which is one of the fo foci of our study. And they also were familiar with this town of Yaguajay, which is a coastal city near there. So Pepe and Jorge's scholarly experience as university faculty, their familiarity with the communities in central Cuba, and... Um, their just openness to different sorts of explorations led us to ask them to be part of our collaboration. And this particular project is, uh, it, it's a larger project than this uh, one article, although the article that we're talking about today focuses explicitly on taste. Can you tell listeners what you mean by taste? How are you thinking about taste as a concept when you first set out to do uh, this, this work, this part of the project? You know, ironically, when we started out on this project, we weren't thinking about taste at all. We were thinking about sustainable agriculture and agroecotourism and how what was going on in central Cuba could be a model for other parts of the world. However, once we started doing interviews with farmers and fishers in Yaguajay and La Picadora, we realized that there was a pattern emerging in, with some of our questions. And that actually led us to 
reflect on what we had experienced once we came back to the United States and to start to realize that, in fact, people were talking about food preferences in ways that didn't necessarily align with the common theoretical framework of taste put forward by Pierre Baudot in Distinction. And so we decided to sort of explore that particular issue. So it, it's almost like serendipity, actually. We, we had an experience with our oral histories that led us to more questions and then turned to the theories that were popular uh, within the study of foodways and, and cultural production writ large. Interesting. And so you mentioned that uh, you mentioned oral history and fieldwork research. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Who did you talk to, generally speaking, and and where and why? So it was actually an interesting and complicated process because, of course, we had two scholars in the United States and two scholars in Cuba. And so one of the first things we had to grapple with was creating a consent form, which is a common practice for oral histories in the United States, but it's not that common in Cuba. And so we had to work together to sort of come to a common understanding that we wanted to make sure our subjects understood that there was a process of consent that they could or did not have to participate, that they could also be anonymous if they so desired, et cetera, which is also why uh, we did not use any people's names in our in our essay. In addition to that, we also had to write our questions. And the question process was also really illuminating for us because we had two very different communities we wanted to focus on. One were fishers, one were farmers. So we had to make sure that we had questions specific to both groups, but yet would be in conversation with each other. So Jen and I actually worked on Google Docs for that. And then we would have to email those questions to Pepe and Jorge, and they would read them and give us feedback. And then we would re-tinker with them and then just continue working through our questions and what made the most sense based upon Jorge and Pepe's experience and knowledge. And then once we got on the ground, we even continued to do that sort of back and forth tinkering with questions that we were going to ask both our farmers and fishers. Um, It actually is really illuminating and it was a lot of fun in the end. Thanks, Kristen. And I think you highlight some of the uh, opportunities and also challenges of globally based collaborative, um, collaborative research um, and, and the way that you um, approached it in this particular project. So uh, why farmers and fishers? Uh, why farmers and fishers? Well, part of that was, of course, driven by the fact that Pepe and Jorge already had relationships with farmers and fishers in Yaguajai and in La Picadora, but also because of those relationships that it allowed us to really connect in a way that I think for, especially for American scholars, um, might struggle with connecting with people on the ground. And in particular, so I think, you know, that that relationship that they already had really facilitated the process. But the second part is farmers and fishers are so instrumental and foundational in terms of food systems in Cuba, but oftentimes scholars, both in Cuba and throughout the world, they focus on big cities like Havana and not necessarily rural areas like Santa Spiritus uh, province, which is where Yaguajai and La Picadora are located. And so we wanted to bring communities that are underrepresented 
to the conversation about food and identity uh, and sustainable uh, food ways, such as farming and fishing. So there is really a twofold uh, process for us. And so you were looking at uh, the rural communities in central Cuba. Uh, can you tell us more about some of the crops and foods that these regions have commonly provisioned? So like much of Cuba, these regions from the time of colonization until the 1959 revolution were growing a lot of sugar, primarily for export. And even after the 1959 revolution, the local residents were continuing to work in sugar mills or continue to work in the fields growing sugar cane for export. In the early 2000s, the central government of Cuba began to shut those government-controlled production um, mechanisms, including the mills. And so a lot of local folks found themselves with different sorts of employment situations. Um, so they began to grow more, more crops just for local consumption. And it's interesting, even though Cuba as a nation has a lot of seafood export and um, provisions a lot of seafood for tourist industry, this region, Yagua High, was never a big commercial fishing hub. Um, even in the town now, there are only a few people who fish for the government. So fishing in that area was primarily always for local consumption and consumption within a family, really. Sometimes those um, marine products are bartered or traded with one another, but it's, it's really just for families to um, feed themselves. Interesting. So um, were there, and one of the things that, that I found really interesting in your articles is you highlighted the the ways in which local foodways, production and local foodways also intersects with um, recreational practices um, rather than uh, commodity uh, commodity production. Um, right. A lot can you of, say more about that? Yeah, a lot of folks talked about how much they enjoyed fishing and it was a family activity. And it, it was indeed for provisioning for their households, but also just something they really enjoyed. And folks who were growing fruit for their own personal consumption in both communities talked about really enjoying the process of gardening and having being able to get fresh fruit at will from their yards or nearby spots. And what kind of uh, fruits, going by the example of fruits or, or fish, um, were really common um, within yeah. those communities? Mm -hmm. So the fish that were most common were um, mostly fish that could be accessed from shore or from pretty shallow areas. Um, most folks in that community, even though it's a coastal community, don't have access to boats. So there was one person whom we interviewed who had access to a government fishing boat. And there were some folks who sort of shared small boats that could go just a few hundred meters offshore. So the the fish that people were most commonly accessing from shore were mostly snappers, so little fish in the snapper family, um, mostly a fish called pargo, which is a mutton snapper. Um, not so much the things that Cuba is known for, like spiny lobsters. That wasn't a big part of the fishers that we talked to, part of their diet or part of their recreational activity, in part because those 
commodities are tightly controlled by the central government as something that's exported. And so um, there are restrictions on um, non-commercial fishers in their catching of things like spiny lobster. As far as fruit, people grew a wide variety of things. Some of the commonly grown things were mangoes and citrus fruits and um, mamies and Kristen, can you help me? Papayas? Bananas. Bananas. Oh yeah, a lot of bananas. <laughs> a lot of bananas. <laughs> um, what about vegetables? I, I noticed that uh, fresh vegetables were not part of the regular culinary repertoires, um, at least in, in the research that you wrote about in this particular piece. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, vegetables were mostly grown as sort of a, um, a condiment or something to add to meat or put on the side of a dish. Um, and this is part of a larger trend in Cuban cuisine, so going back to interviews from the early 1980s, um, uncooked vegetables in particular, but vegetables in general, uh, are not a central part of folks' diets throughout the nation. Um, so there was a, a researcher named Nelson Lowry who did research in the 1940s in Cuba, so this is pre-revolution, and his quote was, the green and yellow vegetables, which are important sources of vitamins, are almost totally absent from the rural diet. We noticed that as well. And so there really isn't um, much culinary history of including vegetables. And it, they are not, they're not grown much. So people grow peppers. Um, people grow tomatoes to use in, um, in their cooking, but not a lot of green vegetables. We did interview a few folks who talked about their love of salad and also attributed that to interactions with tourists. So they had not had like green salads as a side dish until they learned that habit or observed that habit as a result of interactions with tourists through agro-tourism stays. Thanks, Jen. I have a few more questions about this, but before we get to them, we are going to take a short break and we will be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jacqueline Rowell, talking with Kristen Moon and Jennifer Rody ward about food access, identity, and taste in two rural Cuban communities, now available in issue 22.1 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Uh, Jen mentioned this earlier, but I... I uh, in, in one of her responses, but I just wanted to ask a follow-up question in terms of your research, uh, your the fieldwork you were doing, 
Uh, what key moments in Cuba's social and economic history have shaped the foodways as, as you saw them in these central Cuban communities? Uh, and how have they had a lasting impact? Have they had a lasting impact on food access and consumption um, in, the, in the oral histories that you were doing? So it's a, it's a great question. And, and Jen actually was pointing to it um, in her response earlier. And without question, it's the relationship with sugar and sugar cane, both in terms of La Picadora and the residents of Yaquahai. Both those areas see the development of sugar as a main crop, all of which, or almost all of which, is for exportation overseas and especially to places like the United States. And that happens in the early to mid-19th century and transcends the 1898 uh, Spanish-American War, the Cuban Revolution in 1959, and even the special period that starts around 1989 um, it's pervasive. For the folks who are farmers, sugarcane is what they are primarily growing or they are laboring on other people's fields, depending on what historical moment we're talking about. For the folks who live in Yaguahai, it's about working in the factories that process that sugarcane that will eventually leave and head to other parts of the world. When those sugar plants close in the early part of the 21st century, that is when we start to see people diversifying uh, in terms of crops that they're growing, but also diversifying occupations. There is uh, a job programs that emerge as a result of the closure of those factories and people end up going into different fields. And so what's fascinating about our fishers is while what brings them together is their love of fishing, they all have different jobs. However, amongst our farmers, we see that they continue farming, but they diversify what they're growing. I mean, that said, if you drive through Cuba, you still see fields and fields of sugar cane, but it is not to the extent that it once was even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in terms of local consumption, Cuba is an island. Could you give us a sense of how much of its food is currently imported? Yes. So about 50% of all the food consumed in Cuba today originates off island. One of the most interesting examples of this is rice. So rice is really central to the Cuban diet. It's included in most, um, most meals. There's a popular saying, without rice, it's not a meal. And most of the rice is actually exported, I'm sorry, imported into Cuba from other countries, particularly Vietnam. And so even though this is such a central part of Cuban cuisine, it's mostly coming from off-island beef, which is sort of maybe what we think of when we think of Cuban food, like ropa viejo, is not really grown much on island for local consumption. So there is a beef tradition that still is seen in a lot of restaurants, particularly in Havana and in other tourist-rich areas of the country. But the beef itself is only produced domestically in really tiny quantities. It's mostly coming into Cuba from Argentina and from um, Brazil. So it's, it's sold mostly um, at these family-run restaurants, these paladares that... Um, are 
really catering to tourists. Um, another interesting example is milk. So milk is given on the ration in Cuba, and it's mostly reserved for children and pregnant or lactating women. And most milk that's sold in Cuba comes in the form of powdered milk that's imported from New Zealand. So a lot of food that's part of the central Cuban diet is not really coming, not really produced domestically on island. And what are the most common means um, of food procurement? How were culinary goods exchanged um, within the, the research that you did? You had mentioned um, gifting and trading. Um, w- could you give us a sense of, of what, what that looked like? Sure. Um, One thing uh, I want to also talk about is that particularly as Americans, we had presumptions that there was some sort of engagement, especially at La Picadora, with some sort of market economy that residents maybe took their products and sold them in bigger cities in farmers markets uh, or sold them to the state. But in fact, not none of that was happening. Instead, people were exchanging what they were growing amongst themselves or they were gifting. So for example, one of the neighbors uh, grew two varieties of coffee and she would um, bag that coffee and exchange that with her neighbor who grew rice and bananas. Um, that seemed to be a very, very common practice amongst the residents and that using cash uh, was exceptional. And when cash was used, um, it was often used, uh, especially at La Picadora, because they have gotten cash through tourists coming in, and that's where cash comes in. A lot of times that money is reinvested in the community. So one of the things that we saw while we were there is that they uh, took some of that money and they tiled the community kitchen. And uh, to make it cleaner and um, just an easier work surface than poured concrete when you're working with food and, and you know, cooking with multiple people in a kitchen. Um, so that's really the only time where we saw a moment where, where cash of any kind was, was involved, especially at La Picadora. When we talked to our fishers, they also talked about systems of exchange and that primarily they did fishing and that fishing was used to feed their families, but they always would exchange that fish with their neighbors and friends within their neighborhoods and they would exchange fish for tomatoes or fruits, uh, coffees, things like that. That said, there of course, was a state store, and people did use uh, state the state store for certain ration items. Jen pointed out, for example, rice is a ration item that you could get through the state store. Beans, uh, cooking oil was another item that um, people would procure through the state store, which was a critical ingredient. Bread, which is also uh, a critical uh, food item for, for the folks that we were talking with, was also procured uh, through the state store as well. So it it is actually very cash light, I would say, uh, and definitely focus more on systems of barter uh, amongst local folks. Um, it, it was really actually fascinating as an American to see how that operated. 
Thanks, Kristen, for elaborating on on that and the systems of exchange. And I'm curious, one of the questions in the course of your work, um, you asked residents about their favorite foods. So thinking about these these different systems of exchange within the communities, what were some of what were some of the favorite foods? And did they regularly have access to these the foods that they identified as their favorite foods? Yeah. So what's fascinating or again interesting about that question is the question. The initial intention of that question was an icebreaker. It was a way to get to know people, to make our interviews more of a conversation or a chat amongst maybe friends or friends in in the making, so to speak. And what happened is we started to see patterns. We we first started using that question at La Picadora, and one of the things that we saw right away was that amongst our male farmers, that they tended to point to a very particular dish, pork, rice, and beans, as their favorite dish. And it also happens to be something that they grew locally. Um, Pigs actually uh, wandered around La Picadora um, and were killed uh, on a fairly regular basis as well. Uh, And that said, when we talked to women within the same households, we realized that their favorite foods were not what their spouses were talking about and that many of those dishes were not even things that were being served to tourists and that we had actually never eaten them. And that was really fascinating to see that pattern emerge, that there was clearly a gender politic going on, and that what was available local was dictating preferences. When we ended up at Yagua High, we started to see something a little similar, but there was a problem in the sense that we only had two women to interview while we were at Yagua High. Uh, fishing in Cuba tends to be a highly uh, masculine activity. How That said, there are growing numbers of women who are going into fishing, both uh, primarily for recreation, but also uh, for self-sustaining themselves and their families and a a wonderful potential future project for somebody as well. And even though uh, we had such a skewed population at at Yagua High, even there where we saw everybody talking about preferring fish, and in terms of fish, we're talking about fried fish, ceviche, sort of like a raw fish and, and a vinegar sauce or uh, a fish stew uh, escabeche, which was um, mostly tomato onions and some garlic as well as fish. Um, Those dishes that the one person who didn't like fish was a woman uh, and she preferred chicken and salad. So that, again, spoke to some of the gender politics at work. So really confounded our notions of food preference in some fascinating ways for us. Both populations um, have different occupations, gender politics, and then how localized their food preferences were as well really um, were central, I think, uh, to our understanding of preferences amongst these two groups and really confounded our notions of taste going into this project. And so the, your your understanding or your notion of taste um, really evolved over the course of the research. Uh, ab- well, absolutely. Although, honestly, it was almost, it wasn't while we were in Cuba. It was going home and reflecting and thinking about our experiences and listening to our interviews 
that some of those questions emerge. It took time to sort of percolate, so to speak, uh, what was going on and to work through the, the information that people were sharing with us. And Kristen and, and Jen, when you were traveling for field work, did you uh, participate as a guest in the agritourism economy? Were you, were you, staying, were you staying locally? Um, and what were some of your favorite foods when, when you were there? We were really lucky to immerse ourselves in the La Picadora agro-tourism experience. So we got to stay there with the pigs that Kristen mentioned and the chickens and other uh, potential food items that wandered around and through our um, household all day and in the evening. And um, the, all of the food was so delicious. And I think my favorite foods were all of the fresh food, fruits that they served us. I was particularly fond of these uh, batido de mango, so these mango milkshakes that they'd make um, for us. And of course, the cafe con sucre. So everywhere we went, people, people in that part of Cuba grow their own coffee. And so people would have fresh coffee that they uh, had grown in their yard and ground and uh, made us some. Uh, and so we, I think we probably had six or seven little cups of coffee a day with lots of sugar. And um, that was a wonderful experience. For, for me, um, I admit also the mango milkshakes were probably one of my favorite things that we had. They also made tasanis using local herbs that they forage for uh, in the area that were uh, really delicious on hot days. And there were definitely a lot of hot days uh, while we were working at La Picadora. So those two things. And then finally, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. And so they uh, serve flan, which I absolutely adored. And there's actually a photo of it in the article that, with, a, with a serving piece on top. Um, that was one of my favorite dishes that we had there, too. And listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica uh, 22.1. And I also just wanted to emphasize that this is part of a larger project, is it not? You've also um, published recently a case study on Cuban agroecotourism in the International Journal of Cuban Studies. So are you continuing with this research? Are you taking it to um, next stages or what, is, what are your next projects? So that's a, that's a great question. Uh, so it's a little complicated in the sense that we are, of course, as Americans dealing with changes in travel restrictions to go to Cuba. And that has uh, combined with the pandemic put a, put a pause on travel back to Cuba. That said, both Jen and I do hope we can get back in the next year or two and continue our work. One of the things that we had discussed uh, doing is returning to La Picadora and Yaguajai and sharing our research with the residents and use that as an opportunity as a feedback loop to see what their, their thoughts are about our findings and also to talk with them about possible future conversations and questions that we might explore. There is so much that potential in, in these types of communities for scholars, but I also love to have our research be a, a collaboration with community as well. And that's something that I, both Jen and I really hope we can pursue in the future. 
Yeah, that was one big strength of the study, I think, is is combining the expertise of Cuban scholars and folks from the U.S. and really having that community connection affected the quality and quantity of our interviews and um, our ability to really see folks in the communities that we spent time with. I'm really looking forward to to um, following following this work and, and reading up on it as it evolves. Um, before we conclude, is there anything else that you'd like to add or or share with listeners about your about your research about this particular article? Yeah, I think we both just want to emphasize the importance of community based research and really getting to know your community um, by having local guides and what a difference that made for us in access and just understanding and being able to, Kristen talked about how we did a lot of processing once we got back to the U.S. and our processing in-country and once we got back home was really informed by our collaborations with Cuban scholars. And so I guess I would um, encourage folks who are doing international food studies to really get embedded with their communities by including um in-country scholars as part of their work. And I second actually what Jen is saying and to, to push that opportunities for collaboration, especially for Americans uh, to challenge some of the preconceived notions we have as scholars and use this type of work as a form of self-reflection as well as scholarly inquiry and as a way in which to talk and exchange ideas with people that might push you in some new provocative directions, such as this piece on food preferences. Fantastic. Thank you, Kristen and Jen, for joining us. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies 22.1. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. And for listeners who'd like to stay tuned to future episodes, Please subscribe to the Gastronomica feed on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back later next month with the launch of our summer season featuring articles and authors from our upcoming 22.2 issue.